Hello, welcome to MLEX's podcast. My name is James Paniki. I'm a senior editor here at MLEX, and every week we cover the top regulatory stories from around the world. Today, we'll kick things off by passing the recent joint statement on mergers and acquisitions by three of the world's most high-profile and active regulators. It's a discussion, in part at least, linked to the divisions in regulatory responses to Google's ambitious acquisition of smartwatch maker Fitbit. It's been a while since a deal has highlighted such clear divisions in approach among regulators, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Then, ah yes, it wouldn't be an end-of-week podcast without at least some discussion of sport and the debacle that was the announcement of a Super League taking in the top European soccer or football teams. The move has already collapsed, but the rise and fall of the rebellion ticked a number of antitrust boxes along the way, and Lewis Crofts will give us the lowdown from Brussels in just under 10 minutes' time. First up, though, the joint statement by the antitrust regulators of Australia, Germany and the UK this week was, to a large extent, a PR move. All of these regulators feel that they need sharper tools to manage mergers and acquisitions, with particular regard to fast-moving digital markets, and they wanted the world to know. Victoria Ibitoye is a senior correspondent with MLEX, and she reports on M&A from London, and she's with us now. Um, okay, Victoria, let's start with this joint statement. What does it say? Yeah, so the um, the joint statement essentially calls for rigorous and effective merger enforcement. It's the brainchild of the UK's Competition and Markets Authority, Germany's Bundeskartelland, and the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Um, and what it does is essentially reaffirm the need for merger control to stay tough. There is nothing drastically new in the statement um, or surprising. A lot of the things that are mentioned have been mentioned before, um, but it is significant because it shows the regulators are all on the same page about the issues that it mentioned. Um, for example, uh, the joint statement states that in dramatic dynamic markets such as digital Regulators should look at the likelihood of future competition concerns occurring and act as appropriate to stop problematic mergers. Um, And it also states that the coronavirus pandemic should not bring about a relaxation of the standards against which mergers are assessed. Hmm. And so why are the regulators doing this? What prompted them to come together and issue this joint statement? Yeah, so the, the main reason is really to, I think, show unification and send a, a clear message that they all believe merger control um, needs to stay tough. It is also particularly interesting that they mentioned the coronavirus pandemic, um, because that does seem to have been an accelerant for this statement. The regulators seem concerned that the pandemic will increase calls to relax merger control particularly as government aid falls away and struggling companies become rife for acquisition. So this at least appears to be their way of pushing against that. And what is the the most controversial part of the joint statement, as far as you could tell? Yeah, so arguably the most controversial part of the joint statement is how strongly it pushes back on behavioural remedies. The statement makes it clear that the regulators don't believe behavioural remedies work well in most instances, they think they can quickly become outdated and distort the natural development of the market. So the statement states that blocking problematic deals or requiring divestments is 
much more favourable and probably a better solution to preserving competition than behavioural remedies. And this is controversial because the European Commission, for example, most recently accepted behavioural remedies in Google Fitbit and the CMA has openly disagreed with that stance. And it's also notable that in the responses from other regulators to this joint statement, which we've covered on on MLEX, the they have actually disagreed with this part of the of the joint statement. The French competition regulator said it considers that the use of behavioural remedies can be an appropriate response to resolve certain problems. Um, and the European Commission, of course, unsurprisingly, said that in its practice, behavioural remedies or access remedies are sort of often more used in vertical or conglomerate mergers, and, and they can be better suited in, in those cases. All right. So what does this tell us about the future of coordination among regulators? Yeah, so the joint statement suggests that we can expect similar thinking from these authorities. Um, It shows that they already have a strong relationship and are on the same page on a lot of issues. Um, And that will certainly aid coordination when reviewing mergers that cross across their jurisdictions. Now, Victoria, you mentioned uh, in passing just now the Google Fitbit deal and uh, how the UK regulator... Uh, remains um, somewhat concerned by uh, the fact that that deal was allowed through by the European Union. We should remind our readers that the ACCC in Australia, the Australian uh, competition watchdog, um, has also expressed serious concerns about uh, those behavioural undertakings that were put forward by Google. And it does come down to uh, the nature of those uh, undertakings and whether or not behavioural undertakings should be accepted at all in these circumstances. What is uh, what is the view at the moment in the UK of that deal? Yeah, so the the UK, Andrew Cacelli, the UK's chief executive, has always been really vocal about being sceptical of these long-running behavioural undertakings. And when the Google Fitbit deal, uh, the European Commission announced it's, uh, that it was going to accept this sort of wide-ranging remedy proposal, um, he didn't shy away from sort of expressing that had that deal been reviewed in the UK, uh, that remedy wouldn't have been accepted. Um, and I do think it's it's significant because the Google Fitbit deal is arguably a deal that if it happened, if it was announced now, it would be reviewed in the UK. Um, it was it was only not looked at by the CMA because of it, the one-stop shop rule still applied. Um, and of course, Brexit had changed that. So I think, yeah, it is, it's, it's, it's somewhat significant because this seems to be, at the very least, an area where there is clear divergence um, and there is a clear difference in thinking. Victoria, it's been great talking as always. Thank you so much for your time. Great. Good to talk to you too. Victoria Ibitoye is a senior correspondent with MLEX working from our London Bureau and we'll post a link to Victoria's recap on the joint statement at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X, marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab if you are so inclined. Coming up, what the Super League's super implosion tells us about European antitrust. And you can subscribe to MLEX's podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. Feel free to leave a review and help us spread the word. Now, football of the round ball variety that many of our listeners will know as soccer made front page news around the world this week and it had nothing to do with what was happening on the pitch. 
a move by some of Europe's top teams to secede from their national leagues and set up a competition of their own sparked genuine outrage among fans, but it also raised some interesting antitrust questions. MLEX's editor-in-chief, Lewis Crofts, is the person we talk to whenever there's a sporting matter on the table, and he joins us now from Brussels. Um, Okay, Lewis, take us back to the beginning of the week. Uh, What was the football world like before the tumultuous last few days? Uh, The football world was flooded with cash and it was the most popular sport in the world. Um, Things were uh, going along nicely as the way they've done for about the last 30 years or so, which is a series of um, huge clubs, Barcelona, Manchester United, Chelsea, and so forth, playing in huge leagues like the Premier League or La Liga in Spain. And if they win those leagues, then they get into the Champions League, which is the sort of premium European event. Uh, and uh, that was the that was the way that it worked. There's obviously broadcasting money to be had at all levels. But there's a sport has a certain structure uh, in order that it's called the pyramid structure in order that basically uh, clubs can move up through the ranks and get promoted from League 17 to League 16 to League 15 and so forth and ultimately get to the get to the Champions League. And uh, then money flows down. The big cash, which is made at the top through the uh, TV rights, flows down to the little clubs and so that the whole system works together. You know, sport is um, caught in, in two worlds. Um, one, it is a cultural um, phenomenon that doesn't necessarily um, apply uh, follow the rules of uh, business or, or, or commerce. Uh, there are certain protections that it needs. It obviously means a lot to people, identities, entertainment, uh, health and so forth. There are lots of good reasons for, for sports. But equally, it wouldn't have skipped anyone's attention that sport has become a massive money-making enterprise in the last uh, 50 years. So that is the traditional structure of football. It's been this way for quite some time. What was the proposed change that uh, led to such a, an uproar over recent days? Well, the pyramid structure with the rich people at the top and the money flowing down to keep the grassroots alive doesn't make everyone happy. It doesn't make the rich people at the top very happy. They, they want a, a bigger slice of the pie. Uh, they think, you know, if you go to somewhere like the Premier, uh, somewhere like Spain, there are three or four or two very, very big clubs in Real Madrid and, and Barcelona, and then other bigger clubs like Atletico Madrid. And, you know, they want a bigger slice of the pie than uh, some of the smaller clubs. They get you know, more viewers, more um, uh, TV rights and so forth. And so um, the biggest clubs around Europe, 12 of them, uh, basically, French, uh, basically uh, English, Spanish and Italian uh, clubs. So they're going to break away into a new European Super League. Uh, we are um, we're not happy with how the structure works inside uh, UEFA, uh, which is the uh, governing body for, Europe- for Euro- European football. And we want to set up our own thing. We think we can do better. We can do better, uh, get more money, be better for the game. Fans would like it more. Football's dwindling. So they decided to break away. And then, James, all hell broke loose. Um, no one liked it. The players didn't like it. They steadily came out and the coaches steadily came out and said, this is not right. This is not what sport is about. It shouldn't be about the rich getting richer. The politicians didn't like it. Emmanuel Macron, uh, Boris Johnson came out and said they didn't like it, you know, and a bunch of um, MPs and committees and lawmakers. Um, Prince William, that famous voice of sport, although he is, um, he does have, he does have a formal role in um, 
English football came out and didn't like it. Piers Morgan came out and didn't like it. I mean, you can you can you know pick any name, any prominent person, and they really came out against it. They said it wasn't in the spirit of the sport and it was um, going to reserve more revenues for the big guys. And ultimately, that response was enough to bring the whole idea crashing down, right? Well, that's right. I mean, um, it was facet. It was a fascinating forty-eight hours. If you're in the nerdy world of of law. Because at the heart of this, there are some very, very key legal questions and key competition questions. And why is that? Well, sport, as I said before, while it does have its own structure and its own sort of cultural significance, it is a business and therefore business rules apply. And those business rules are, are competition rules. And what um, happened uh, a year or two ago was the European Commission won a court case which gave it uh, clear powers or which, which set out how it would go about regulating sports entities. In this case, uh, it was about skating, the skating um, International Skating Union, which regulates um, skating bodies. And that basically made clear that governing bodies who stop people setting up alternative events or going to alternative events risk uh, breaking competition rules. Why is that? Because we should all be free to go and ply our trade how we want to do. Uh, we have, you know, we, I say we the footballers, but, um, you know, we have a right to go and play how we want, where we want, and shouldn't feel locked into the superstructure of UEFA. What UEFA said was, if these clubs go away, if Manchester United, Manchester City, Tottenham, I don't know why Tottenham was in- included, Juventus and so forth go away, um, then they're all going to be banned from all the UEFA competitions. So this means banned from all these, um, you know, uh, amazing competitions, plus, you know, UEFA babysits the you know, European Championships, the Champions League and so forth. And they would, UEFA would exclude these clubs uh, and their players from playing um, in the traditional uh, football structures. And that kind of a threat would be seen. I mean, it's all academic at the moment, obviously, because the whole the whole thing has has come crashing down. But that kind of a threat would be uh, would sound some alarm bells among competition regulators in Europe, right? Absolutely, the threat to ban someone from playing um, is a huge threat, and this is what was the problem for the International Skating Union. They said, if you're going to go and take part in this rival event in Dubai, we're going to ban you from our events, and that means banning you from the Olympic Games. And for skaters who might have a short career, the Olympic Games really is the thing that they're going for. They might only have one, possibly two in their entire careers. And so you take this competition case law across to the football case and you would say, well, hang on, UEFA is threatening to ban these footballers from all of its championships. Uh, That would be a bit tasty. That would probably go too far. Now, what the bans, the bans are possible because the rules of the court were, um, as long as it's proportionate. And what the um, um, UEFA would probably say is, uh, this is a very proportionate response to something which is an absolute, which is tearing up the football world and the, the soul of football is at stake. And this is a proportionate response. Equally, the problem with the skating case was that players, you know, um, really needed the Olympic Games to push their careers forward and to earn their money. You exclude them from the Olympic Games, you're really basically just, you're, you're, you could be accused of torpedoing their careers. If a footballer of the status and the earning potential of Lionel Messi or um, Harry Kane was excluded from a couple of European football championships, it would be great, but it wouldn't be the end of the world for them financially. There would definitely be other ways for them to apply their, apply their um, trade. And so you couldn't really, you, there would be an argument to say that they weren't suffering 
um, their, their business, the business of football wasn't suffering as much. Mm. But both sides of this debate were equally uh, tainted with potentially anti-competitive conduct, right? Exactly. So the, the interesting thing was uh, everything I've just said for the last couple of minutes was about how UEFA might have um, might have been um, overcooking it by threatening these bans. But frankly, everyone who came out, all of these politicians came out uh, and supporters and people protesting outside of um, football, football stadium around Europe, uh, they all came out in favour of UEFA. They all hated the European Super League. So you had to throw. So if you're going to throw some stones back at the European Super League um, and say, hang on, you guys are breaking the law, what would that be? Well, these 12 clubs who, who decided to break away constitute a massive amount of the market. And um, they are trying to take all of that money and all of that revenue um, away with them. Uh, and you could accuse them of, and, and people did, I think Boris Johnson called them a cartel. So essentially they have a restrictive agreement between them to stitch up the market. What it would mean is they would, in their new league, they would reserve you know, the lion's share of the, of the money and the lion's share of the, of the spaces, in the, the places in the league. The league was going to have 20 places, of which 15 would be these founder members. And only other small clubs would be let in from time to time, as and when they, they won the Portuguese league or the Belgian league or, or whatever. And so the complaint was... You, not you for saying we haven't broken the law. The people breaking the law are the breakaway clubs who are trying to set up a cartel. And um, you know why would it interest someone? Well, imagine you were Sparta Prague. Sparta Prague is a very good football club in the Czech League, and they would traditionally qualify for the Champions League every year. You know by winning the Czech League. Now, how, how can they get it? Get one of these five spaces in the new European Super League? They might. They could win their league ten times on the on the trot, and they might not might not break into that league. So why would someone go and invest in Sparta Prague? You just wouldn't, you just wouldn't bother because your, your earning potential is not gonna, never going to take into the big league, the big time. Uh, the classic example of this is Paris Saint-Germain, which was you know, one of France's big clubs, but was wallowing a little bit in insignificance. And then along came some um, mega bucks uh, from the Middle East and has propelled it in, into, into the Super League. Why would anyone do that if you couldn't guarantee that you were going to get to the premium event? Um, why didn't regulators, competition regulators, get more involved or more fired up about this? Because, I mean, not a week goes by without DG competition in at the European Union level reminding us of the importance of letting market forces rip. Here is an attempt to break away from UEFA, which is essentially, in, in this sense, a, a monopoly a, a monopoly player, why would the European Commission not have embraced this and said, look, this is the best thing that's ever happened to uh, football on in continental Europe? Excellent question. And uh, while those 48 hours were swirling um, with yeah, protests and, and accusations flying left, right, and with competition law, European competition law, and also UK competition law, very much at the centre of it, the regulators, generally speaking, shut up, uh, stayed at home and locked the front door. Why, why, why is this? Well, uh, first of all, tit-for-tat stuff is never great. You know, you don't want to be found uh, in the middle of it. Secondly, you certainly don't want to be found in the middle of uh, a fight, um, an existential fight of the world's largest sport um, with all the money and all the influence and all the politics around that. But thirdly, um, I think officials understood that this case law about skating much as it might be good and they won the case in court and it raises some interesting questions, 
it's probably difficult to apply it to the megabucks world of, of, of football for the reasons I said, you know, the earning potential of footballers is, is different. And even if and applying it would put the European Commission at um, loggerheads with UEFA, which, um, as I said, in, that 40, in those 48 hours, no one was against UEFA. Everyone was against the Super League. So, so there, there must be some political consideration in all of this on the part of the European Commission as well. I mean, you don't want to antagonise uh, all sections of the community who seem to be very much in favour of UEFA and against the Super League. Absolutely, you don't. You just don't want to find yourself in the in the middle of it. In the same way that the regulators often don't like to find themselves in the middle of massive fights between U.S. tech companies or U.S. and Chinese tech companies. You know, um, there's 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 not much to gain. Um, so what the position was of, of regulators was to say these kinds of things are best solved in arbitration. So you know private disputes or by going to court itself. So basically saying, don't come to our door, go to the, you know, the sports courts or the courts of, of, of Madrid or Milan, which indeed um, the disputes did, did end up landing there. They and also landed in the court of public opinion, which seems to be the most important court around it. Ex- exactly. And, uh, you know, one thing that we'll all learn from this is that when there's so much turmoil and fury about something, uh, a solution is found very, very quickly, and the law moves very, very slowly. And I think the, the, the regulators are right to uh, step out because you know the fastest something can be solved, but through regulation, be it drafting new laws or running investigations, is a couple of years. And this was all 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 dead in the water within forty eight hours when you know Chelsea said he's going to leave, and, and and Man City left under pressure, and Manchester United's boss resigned. You know the it. We, it would be interesting to see what happened if this degree of fury and civic engagement and uh, political um, engagement could be harnessed for something like, you know, climate change or hospital beds or, or whatever. <laughs> um, so, you know, antitrust law ended up being absolutely unimportant in the whole thing because of the speed of the political um, juggernaut. But um, it's still, it, you know, there could have been a fight there. And just as a sort of reminder... There is exactly the same fight about a breakaway league going on in basketball. And there is a complaint on the desk of investigators for this. It's a breakaway. It happens to actually be at similar clubs because people like Real Madrid and Barcelona have, have basketball teams as well. And the commission um, has had it on its, on its desk for six, ten months or so. And if it wanted to pick this fight... I would encourage it, I would tell it to pick it with basketball. European basketball is not like North American basketball. Um, it's um, you know, got great quality, but not the um, millions and millions of, of, of watches and, and megabucks. And you could easily get your hands dirty on that and solve the problem rather than taking on you know, UEFA, FIFA, Chelsea, um, Juventus and the rest. Okay, so where do things stand now? What's going to happen next? So, um, you know, Every every ten minutes brought a new uh, uh, revelation about uh, another club getting cold feet and more demonstrations and more politicians hating it and so so it's all dead now. Although you know by the time this podcast goes out, you know twenty minutes after we've spoken, it's probably changed again. But it's all dead now. I think the um, all the big clubs have got their tails between their legs. They're all apologising to their fans for getting it wrong. People are resigning. Uh, so football is now cl- you know um, breathing a collective sigh of relief. What I think it's done is it is, um, certainly in countries like the UK, is it's shown that um, football may need closer regulation. And that won't necessarily be competition regulation, or it's highly unlikely to be competition regulation, but there will be closer scrutiny on it. That something like this could 
at all have been possible in the first place. So there, there will be, you know, um, they call them things like fan-led reviews. Uh, there will be, there could be the introduction people discuss of this rule called 50 plus one, which is a German approach to basically ensuring that clubs um, aren't dominated by financial investors, uh, but they're dominated by fans. Uh, this rule in itself has brought uh, antitrust scrutiny in Germany, uh, but there, I think it, it has just shown a spotlight on the need to engage more closely with football um, governance. Lewis, thank you so much for walking us through this issue. Let's talk again very soon. Thanks, James. Lewis Crofts is MLEX's editor-in-chief, and he was joining us from Brussels. Lewis has written a fine piece of analysis on this week's events, and it's ready for you to peruse. Our website is as follows, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word, dot com, and click on the News Hub tab. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. We'll be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time for the very latest regulatory news from MLEX's team of reporters. From me, James Panicki, and everyone at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you very much for your company. I'll see you again very soon. Bye for now. Bye for now.